And I think especially in the time now where we're looking at sort of the mental health of our teams and the exhaustion, maybe they do have something to say, but they're not either not comfortable or not in a place where they feel like they can have the time. Maybe they're running off the patient to a a test or something and don't have the time because I think that's the other big piece is making sure we don't rush those kind of conversations. A statement such as, I'm not sure, but I'm worried, is enough to say, I hear you. I have concerns too, but this is all I can offer Welcome to Radical Nurse Talk, a podcast that explores nurses' communication in serious situations and illness as a radical act of care. I'm your host, Patricia Dragon. Conversations involving life and death decisions are hard for and on everyone, including nurses. And yet they are a part of day-to-day practice in highly technical environments like critical care. In our conversation today, I speak with Sarah Crow about the demands on critical care nurses and the complexities of communicating with patients and especially families who are facing new realities and decision-making about life and death. Sarah began her nursing career at Surrey Memorial Hospital in 2001 in the emergency department and then transitioned to critical care. She completed dual specialty certification in both emergency and critical care nursing Master's of Nursing, Postgraduate Nurse Practitioner. She has held a variety of leadership roles in Fraser Health in British Columbia, including Charge Nurse, Educator, and Regional Clinical Nurse Specialist for Critical Care, and developed the Critical Care Nurse Practitioner role at Surrey Memorial Hospital. She's now working on her PhD in Nursing at the University of British Columbia, as well as a focus on ICU survivorship and chronically critically ill patients, Sarah is also focused on supporting the mental health and practice of clinicians. She's received several awards and research grants for her work and is currently the president of the Canadian Association of Critical Care Nurses, the national voice for critical care nurses. Welcome, Sarah. And congratulations on all your success in forging new roles and research regarding nursing work and and the critically ill. Thank you so much. So I'm thinking that before we start to talk about the communication work that nurses do with patients and families in critical care, if we can focus for a moment on the issue of mental health and practice of clinicians, because I'm thinking that that must be central to the relational work that nurses do. Absolutely. Um, And and thank you. I think that is a great place to start. Through the beginning of COVID, I've worked in an ICU now for about 18 years, but when COVID began, I noticed how much my team was suffering. And I think working in critical care um, for a number of years, we already knew that being in critical care was a very emotionally charged uh, mentally challenging place to be with the acuity that we see, the life and death decisions, the connection to families that sometimes their most awful moments of their lives. Um, and so then uh, layering the pandemic on top of that just really saw nurses struggling. And so I really just found it was an opportunity to give them a voice to better understand what it meant to them and to their mental health to be working in this environment. Um, And it was really kind of shocking. So despite the huge amounts of overtime, uh, extended shifts, the working short staff, um, the outpouring of people wanting to talk to me about what this meant to them and their mental health was staggering. 
um, they really, the nurses I talked to just appreciated that somebody really wanted to understand it from their perspective. What we learned was that the overwhelming like psychological impact with the anxiety and fear of trying to do good patient care for what they, the high expectations they have of themselves in this un, unknown environment um, took a tremendous toll on the mental health. And we've seen that impact translate um, into practice. And we've seen it the way that people interact with each other. We've seen it how they interact with their patients. We've seen it in the absenteeism and the stress leaves. And I, I think, well, the pandemic was awful and I don't ever wish to encounter an experience like that again in, in my lifetime. I think it actually opened the world and to our own community about how precarious our work really is. And regardless of the pandemic or not, that so many of us work in such emotionally charged, exhausting roles that we actually don't give the proper attention and space to our mental health, to our team health, um, and that the impact when something like this does happen is, is staggering. Um, and so that we're not prepared for what that means. Um, and we don't necessarily even know how to support one another during that because we're all in that same boat. That's very powerful and concerning. You've said about nurses supporting patients and families at some of the worst moments in their lives, that that's what critical care nurses do. And that is relational work that we're going to talk about today. And it's sounding to me like some very bad moments also in the lives of nurses are happening that's affecting their own communication styles and experiences. Is there anything in particular that nurses have told you in relation to their communicative work that has stood out yeah, in terms of the COVID and pandemic? There's actually, there's a couple of things. So I they've shared the challenges they find when they leave work. And so one of the things I think that was so profound to me was that the impact that they're feeling isn't just professionally, that it's also personally. So nurses are leaving work drained, um, telling me that they're, you know, that they're empty when they go home. Um, and that it's really impacting their personal lives, their personal relationships. Returning to work when you're already feeling empty and haven't had that connection or the ability to relax and restore and rejuvenate with your family, um, it then begins to impact the communication. So nurses are sharing that they, you know, are short with their team members that, you know, I, I should never have spoken to that person that way, but I just don't have it in me anymore. And so I think the patient, sorry, not the people, the patients, but just their own patients with each other suffers. And so it, it impacts the team dynamic. Um, I've also seen nurses uh, more closed off with patients and families just because they have nothing left to give. And I, and I think there's that self-protection there in trying to preserve um, what little emotional um, energy they may have that uh, they need to get through the shift. They need to do their job well. And if I engage emotionally, I can't do that. And then also really trying to preserve so they have something left for their family and friends and children at home so that when they leave from the day that they're not broken. I've seen the power of the team, but I've also seen how it's definitely impacted. And I've seen teams crumble under that pressure. So I think it's very unique to the individual and to that particular team. But the mental health impacts are far reaching to all aspects of healthcare providers' lives when when they're under stress. So I think that that's interesting. We have heard a lot about how it does impact the individual nurse, uh, at least in, in the public sphere. I think we've heard that. 
I'm not so sure that we've heard from nurses particularly around how it's affecting the actual care they give or how they talk to people. So you've given us a little bit of meat on the bones there around what is what is happening. Yeah, I, I think when I talk to nurses, I definitely hear the, I give good care, but I know I've had nurses tell me there was an opportunity where I know the patient's wife needed, wanted to talk more, but I just didn't have it in me then. So I focused on tasks because that's what I was capable of doing in that moment. I, I'm wondering how we ever capture that, you know, so that that's meaningful data that that means something to for system change. I don't know how we capture that because I think I should back up. So I'm in a very unique position. So being a nurse practitioner now, um, I first identify absolutely as being a nurse, um, but I'm also part of the medical staff here. I don't have nurses who report to me. I'm a integrated team member, but in some ways it makes me a safe place. So I'm not their educator, I'm not their manager. I'm a colleague, but I'm also a leader. So I think I hear some of these stories because I am that safe place. If we were to try to collect the data, I wonder if it would be collected accurately. I think nurses are afraid to say they're not doing the best work they could do. Nurses don't want to admit maybe that they're not doing the best possible job. And in their minds, they're still doing good work, which I don't deny that they aren't, but there's still an opportunity where they could be doing more. I'm not sure how you ask the questions properly to gather data like that, except for the experiential pieces that people are willing to share. I've wondered about that so many times. How do you capture work that is, let's say, not done, that normally wouldn't have been captured anyway on a checklist or something. So it's really, how do you ever capture the effect of that? So really nurses reporting times when they didn't engage would be would be one way, I suppose. But it reminds me of like a near miss. It's on the time that you, that, you know, nothing happened and that was a good thing, but this time nothing happens and it's not such a great thing. And we don't know what the outcome is for patients and families. But for the nurses themselves, what is the cumulative effect of that on their mental health, their job satisfaction, the team dynamics? Like, I think it'd be hard to capture that. So that does point to, I guess, an assumption that is this embedded in what we're talking about. And that is that the relational work that nurses do is very important to their own sense of professional practice. I think so. And the satisfaction they have in that connecting. So let's illuminate that a little bit more and look at some of the very challenging times, <laughs> difficult times, I think people might say that nurses have in a critical care setting where that relational work is just so key to helping patients and families cope, make decisions, live with decisions. So if we could uh, move move and look at some of those times. One of those, I think, would be decision making around withdrawal of life support. Mm-hmm. Are there other are there other situations that are identified as particularly challenging in terms of communicating with patients who are often unconscious, but families in particular in critical care settings? I would say the other times that I find challenging is not just the withdrawal of of life-sustaining therapies, but the decisions about not to engage in some of those therapies. So when we decide 
to not offer dialysis or not to intubate those kind of decisions as well. So when we talk about difficult conversations, sometimes when people are ready to leave the ICU, it's also decisions about what happens next. Do you wish to ever return? What's the what's the journey looking like now? I think those can be really challenging conversations too. So those sound like a little bit about future planning, goals of care discussions, moving out of critical care into perhaps other care or potential. So when you say the discussions around what not to offer, are those conversations that are held between the healthcare professional team or are those conversations with patients and families? Or I both? would say it's both. So sometimes it's looking at the patient situation, the comorbidities, what's happening, and the team really talking about what what do we think is best for this patient given all of this. But it's never straightforward of us just deciding. So it's the team coming to, a, yes, we agree that, you know, this patient with maybe end-stage COPD or lung disease, that maybe intubation is not the best option. But then it's figuring out how do you then bring that to the patient and family? And how do you talk to them about that decision as well? I find with healthcare teams, especially in critical care, because we're so exposed to a lot of this high, highly technical environment and we see repeated scenarios, whether that's people um, with advanced disease and, and life support, we develop preconceived ideas of what we would want or what people should want and not want. And I find a lot of times we talk about moral distress or psychological distress. And I found in my particular role, a lot of it's trying to reorientate the team to is that your value and your belief about what you want? Or is that what this patient wants? And really trying to get people to wrap their head around the difference there. Because yeah, maybe we see this all the time. But this person, this family, this is the first time they've seen any of this. And we can't emphasize enough that they have a very different view, a very different experience of what's going on than we do. And some of us would say, oh, well, we're cynical or we're jaded. But it really is. We've experienced this so many times after you've been in critical care for you know 15 years, but it's really being able to, to take a step back and see what's it like on the other side. So this person, this family, perhaps it's their first time in hospital, their first time in an intensive care unit. This is overwhelming and scary. We can appreciate that maybe in primary care, goals of care or advanced care planning should have happened. It often doesn't. And wasting our time blaming what could have been done is not helpful to the team. It's really about if I were in their shoes, if this was the first time, how would I feel? How do I then approach this? So important to identify our own assumptions and expectations and how those are influencing what we say. Yeah. And our own values, because really, especially I think in today's population, we're such a multicultural, diverse group of people that would I value versus what you value may be very, very different. And so I really need to have sorted in my head what my values are and to make sure I'm aware of that. Because I think sometimes there's it's there, but we're not always necessarily aware that we're projecting our values. And I suppose that uh, repeated experience that results in this pattern recognition that you describe is, oh, we have another person with these general characteristics in this specific situation that I have seen repeated over and over with a certain general tendency that we might not even be aware of how our our own values have become more clear to us, I guess, over time. I think so. And our own biases, because I mean, as much as we 
provide as much comfort as we can inadvertently, especially in critical care, there is suffering. Yes. Um, and I think just that repeated exposure to human suffering, I think, does alter your view or your values. But being able to recognize that, and it kind of ties back into that mental health piece, being able to recognize the repeated exposures, the ex- repeated um, stresses, and to understand how that's impacting you as a person, I think is so important for all healthcare providers to be able to do. So that witnessing suffering as part of the ongoing job that you have takes its toll. Absolutely. And I mean, really, I I think it oversimplifies things, but you can't avoid suffering when you're in hospital. There's some form, whether it's physical, emotional, psychological, there's suffering there. And whether we realize it or recognize it as suffering, we're a part of that. We have a goal of alleviating suffering and and returning people to their, you know, pre-hospital status. But sometimes in order to do that, we inflict suffering, which isn't wrong. It's just part of the journey in trying to get people stable and back to where they were at. So I think not a lot of people think of it in terms of that. It may be very hard to think about it in terms of that, but it is what we do. It's done from a pace of caring and, and commitment to people, but it's, it is part of what we do. I wonder how is it that nurses become prepared to step into that work? I don't know that you can be prepared. Mm. So as much as you go through your nursing school and training, um, I think a lot of it is a cumulative exposure and individual connections and relationships along the way that that help prepare you. Um, I would say like when I first started in ICU, I definitely was not prepared for some of the, what went on. And I definitely saw situations where you'd look at it and go, this is futile. Why are we doing this? It's taken me a long time to be able to appreciate that. I don't know what it's like to be in this family's shoes. I don't know what it's like from their perspective or what quality of life means to them. So I think as you connect and I think you need to approach it from a place of curiosity and that constant sort of checking in with yourself of, you know, what's this like for you? How do I feel about this? And how is that, how might that be impacting the care I'm giving? Um, one of the groups of people that I work quite closely with in my practice is people who have end-stage um, ALS disease. I see a lot of people at end of life choosing either uh, palliative care or some who decide that they still have quality of life and that living on a chronic ventilator is actually acceptable to them. And it's a it's a very interesting group to work with. And I know a lot of the nurses struggle with people who choose to live on chronic ventilators in what is approaching a vegetative state and have a really hard time rationalizing that there can still be quality of life there. I actually do a lot of teaching and talking and in the moment conversations about that kind of decision and how do we work with people who decide that when it doesn't match our values. So basically you're saying nurses need mentoring or a place to debrief, I don't know, uh, to, to enter into some supportive discussion about that. Everybody needs a mentor. I think regardless of the place you are in your career journey, everybody needs a mentor. I think there's just so much to be learned and to be offered both as a mentee and as a mentor. Um, but I also, like you mentioned that debrief and that's something that I've actually been advocating for is I would love to see a process in place in hospitals where there's routine base or, or opportunities for that team connection and debrief. Like we at my site, we do have critical incident stress debriefing that's brought in for particularly challenging cases. But I would argue that the cumulative effect of even just the day-to-day normal cases wears on 
the staff and that there needs to be the safe place that maybe you don't need it every month, but there's an opportunity to connect and come together to talk about just that accumulative impact of just the day-to-day work that you've encountered and that it doesn't need to be a particularly horrific cardiac arrest or or Mm -hmm. horrific death or something, but just the day-to-day. Um, I think would be helpful for staff and for the whole team, not just nurses, but to be able to um, to come together to talk about how they're doing, what's it been like, things they're struggling with. Um, I think it's an, an amazing opportunity to build connections within your team so you can see you're not alone in these. And then that mentorship-mentee relationship can also develop in that connection so that you can support one another. It's a wonderful idea. And you're talking about that being integrated as part of a normal routine, I suspect it would also need to be a psychologically safe space. Absolutely. For people that they could trust to be heard and uh, not judge themselves. In your conversation so far, you've used some language that we often attribute to critical care settings and just wondering if you could offer some reflections on that around using those words with families uh, like futile, even end of life, withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy versus with li- withdrawal of life support. What are some other terms that or lingo that you're particularly aware of that get used and maybe misunderstood in critical care. It's funny. And I, I actually, in my, you say these words and we had started by talking about some of them. I actually make a real effort in my day-to-day work not to use them because that idea of withdrawal of care is something that we've heard oh. and it's not. So I talk about transitioning care. And so when I talk with the teams, when I talk to patients and families, I talk about uh, transitioning to a comfort care so that the whole goal is comfort and what does that look like i never use the words withdrawal with families or futile because they are not well received they're not understood in the same way that you or i might understand them with a you know a critical care emergency background um so i think language is very very powerful um and one of the the ways when i approach some of these situations is really making sure when i'm going to talk with family or and patients, making sure I have enough time that it's never a rushed conversation. I'm really looking at having them explain to me, what do you understand about what's going on? Please tell me so that I can understand from their perspective. And also the words they use will let me know what their understanding is as well. And to be able to use some of those words when I then communicate back to them, having it as an open dialogue and never talking about withdrawing, but it's always you know, we've made the decision to transition to comfort to what does comfort look like and what can you expect? Um, and then really just checking in. And at the same time, as much as we talk about comfort, also being very, very cautious of the language too. So there's no misunderstanding that we're transitioning to comfort care. I don't know how long death will take to occur, but that the end goal is a peaceful death. And so really just being concrete, but kind at the same time. I think a lot of us are afraid to use language around death and dying. And we reverse to medical jargon, like withdrawal of life-sustaining therapies, which doesn't make sense to a family in crisis or a patient in need. And so really trying to be concrete, but kind at the same time. Wise counsel. Again, you're talking about putting yourself in the shoes of the other. And so often, as you know, when we go into nursing uh, or people go into any of the health professions, our language changes 
within months, we we speak differently. And sometimes use that outside of just interprofessional talk. So it does have an effect on families and patients. The term comfort care has always been a curious one for me too, because I guess it's basically saying that maybe before wasn't comfortable or, <laughs> you know, how is it that we, we that we learn to know what that means? So again, interpretation of words, it sounds like you do that. Yeah. So when I, when I talk to families and even some of the staff, because sometimes there is a misunderstanding of comfort. So when we, when I talk to them, I, I will give examples of, yes, you know, your mom was on, you know, morphine or whatever for comfort, but we are still doing blood work and poking. We were still doing these different things that were uncomfortable or caused pain and suffering. And so because we're focused on just comfort now, we won't do those things. So I'm not going to check blood work every day. I'm not going to give an uh, anoxaparin injections to prevent a blood clot because that's no longer aligned with our goal. So really just talking about what we're not going to do, but it's so important to focus on what we are going to do because you don't ever, in my opinion, don't ever want someone just to know what you're taking away or what you're not doing. You want to show everything that you are doing. So this is what we're going to do now. And this is why I'm doing these things. Um, just so they can really see that death with dignity and comfort is our goal. Um, I do hesitate to make promises. I, so I really tr- try to say like our every effort is going to be to make sure there's no suffering. Um, and this is what I'm going to do to help, but trying to make sure I never make promises that I can't keep as well. So I never want to break that trust. And of course, we can never predict the exact circumstance of death. Even we can have a pretty good idea, but sometimes there are surprises. Yeah. And one of the things I have found really helpful is just talking to families about sort of my fears or worries. Um, So I will often use that language that I'm really worried there's going to be suffering. And I don't want that for your mom. I wouldn't want that for you. These are the things I would like to do, because a lot of it is a negotiation of how you're going to do that withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy. So um, being able to communicate in a way that really lets the other people know that you care. And so I, I often will use, I'm worried, I'm afraid that this is going to, just so they can see that I really do have their best interests at heart. And I, I have found tremendous you know, success and, and easy relationship building and, and trust building when I use that language with patients and families, because I think it shows the human side of, of healthcare that I really, you know, I don't want you to suffer. I'm worried that if we do it like this, this is going to cause you more discomfort. And it's, it seems to have worked for me. Yeah. So You're aligning uh, with them. Let's talk a little bit about the conversation, the actual conversation and, and what that might look like. From a nurse's viewpoint, uh, what kinds of questions do nurses get asked? And then, and then how do nurses become involved in terms of the communicative work they do? I totally agree with you about the phrase withdrawal. And I agree. Maybe we should strike that from uh, phrases that get used, withdrawal of care, because care is never withdrawn. Yeah. Very helpful to have you remind us about the taking away of anything seems like a loss versus versus care, perhaps. So how we frame things. How do those conversations get started? I often think 
they get started often when a family member asks for an opinion. They can, they've maybe started to have some discussions or they've seen the scenario playing out in front of them. And so I hear a lot of families say, well, what do you think? What do you think is going to happen? And I know a lot of nurses are really uncomfortable because they feel like they're giving a like a diagnostic um, opinion. And so I think it's, again, it's giving nurses permission that, especially when they've been in an area for some time, that you have a lot of experience. So you you do have something to share. They're not asking for you to say there's a 13% chance of survival. They're asking in your experience when you've seen people like this, what do you think? Um, and I think as long as you're asked that, that's an opening and that's permission to share your experience. I think sometimes nurses um, find themselves in a bit of a pickle when they offer that opinion before it's asked for and families and patients may not be ready to hear that opinion until they've asked for it. Um, but once they've asked, I think that's, that's that invitation into the room. That's that invitation into their lives of, I see what you're doing for the, my loved one and I value it and I value your opinion. And I think just being very honest, we never know what's going to happen for sure. But in my opinion, this is what I think. Um, and so being very clear that it's an opinion based on, you know, lots of experience versus this is what's going to happen. So I think, again, that language piece is key. And it's very also key to make sure you have enough of an understanding or enough of a relationship to know how to talk to that person. So if I have a patient or a family whose uh, language, first language isn't English, if they're asking for my advice or my opinion or an update, um, making sure there's somebody there to translate properly. So even if they understand, kind of understand English, there is a lot of um, misconception with different words and, and different meanings. So really being sure that there's um, an appropriate interpreter there to help. Um, is key, or even just making sure that depending on their level of education or experience, that you're using words that they can understand. So I really try to keep medical um, jargon at a minimum, and I encourage nurses not to use it. Even if we know the patient or family has a healthcare background, I think we forget that in the moment of crisis, none of that, that's not how they're thinking. They're emotionally charged and they're they're a daughter, a son, a wife in that moment. They're not a nurse or a doctor or whatever their background is. And so using simplified language um, to explain things in everyday terms is very important. If they start using medical jargon, then it's okay, but I'm trying to keep it um, at a minimum and, and appreciating that different professionals don't have the same experience. So, you know, a labor and delivery nurse isn't going to understand critical care lingo. And I need to be aware that even though they might be a healthcare provider, it's not going to, my words aren't going to make sense. So really talking to them in a way that they can understand in the moment. And that moment is usually emotionally charged. So that reflects the diagnostic work, if you like, of nurses around what's happening here for this person. And how do I need to respond? So that's that's complex work. I say, and if I also encourage nurses, if they don't feel comfortable giving information or opinions, especially if if we I see scenarios where they're waiting for like a medical update, things aren't going well. The family intuitively knows things aren't going well, and they start asking, "What do you think?" You don't have to answer, but you can, in kindness, say, "I'm not really sure, but I'm really worried this isn't going well." So it gives that empathetic response. Um, it doesn't commit the nurse to making a big, you know, statement. 
Um, but it also, it, it communicates that I'm worried this isn't going well, but I'm not sure. And it just, I think it helps build that trusting relationship and that connection. And obviously at the time, it may not be going well for the patient, but it's also not going well for that family member. And I think especially in the time now where we're looking at sort of the mental health of our teams and the exhaustion, maybe they do have something to say, but they're not either not comfortable or not in a place where they feel like they can have the time. Maybe they're in running off the patient to a, a test or something and don't have the time. Because I think that's the other big piece is making sure we don't rush those kind of conversations. But a statement such as, I'm not sure, but I'm worried, is enough to say, I hear you. I have concerns too, but this is all I could offer right now without discrediting that opportunity or ignoring that opportunity to engage. Anything else around the um, discontinuing of certain medical treatments that nurses would be needing to be conversing with families around? I would actually like to bring up the patient themselves. Okay. Because I think there's also, there's an assumption a lot of times that in these scenarios that the patient isn't able to participate. And while that may be the case in the majority of the times, often the patient is able to meaningfully engage in some way. And I think that's actually key um, to remind you know, nurses as well, is to to bring the patient into that conversation, um, which can be difficult when they're intubated. Um, but it's trying to find meaningful ways to communicate with the patient as well, especially somebody um, who is awake and aware and can direct their own care. Um, and it's trying to figure out a way to communicate with the patient as well and bring them into the conversation and and figure out a way to give the patient a voice, which is challenging. As you can imagine with, you know, endotracheal tubes or tracheostomies where we've taken away the the voice of the patient, literally, um, but we actually haven't taken away their choice to communicate. We just have to find new and inventive ways to do it. So again, you're reminding us around assumptions that we are bringing into action constantly because assuming that they can't or wouldn't have an opinion. So in those, uh, can we just, as we're winding down here, wondering around uh, MAID, like medically assisted death, is that happening in, in critical care settings or organ donation? Those are also, there's decisions around that. Yeah. So MAID is not common in critical care, but is done in critical care. So um, medical assistance in dying can be done. I think there's a misconception that it's not, um, but it is different than withdrawal of life, life-sustaining therapies. So I, I have had a few patients who have requested MAID while they've been in the ICU. And so there's, there's definitely like a lengthy process of referral and assessment um, that we will help the patient do if that's what their choice is. Sometimes um, it's a matter of explaining the differences between a withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy versus MAID. And that the end result can be the same, but they're done in a slightly different way. And that oftentimes I've, I find that patients did, didn't know that the withdrawal of life support was possible and what it looked like. They're just so worried about the suffering. Um, so most of the time, the patients who ask about MAID, once I've explained how we can do uh, comfort care and what withdrawal of, ven- of the ventilator looks like or the um, life-saving vasoactive drugs looks like, and how we can address comforts. A lot of times they'll just choose the comfort care option versus made, um, but that we can do we can do both. It can be a little more tricky though, because if the patient's not conscious, then made is not an option. No. So in one case, you're actually 
stopping a treatment. And in the case of medically, medically assisted death, it would be intentionally administering something. Yeah. So explaining those two. It's possible for people to conflate the two. Well, and for a lot of the general public without a a medical understanding, the idea of withdrawing life support is a difficult concept to wrap their brains around. Like a lot of people think it's euthanasia or it it is made. Um, It's just trying to really explain that it's it's stopping or taking away a, um, a therapy that's no longer working and allowing a natural death to occur. And then some people may not appreciate the different the differences, and that's okay. Those are also very helpful words and sentences, I think, that, that you've offered us. It's very challenging work. And I hear that you are a champion for supporting nurses holistically so that they can be the caregivers that they want and need to be in critical care settings. What's your next question or uh, focus in terms of that area? And that is the relational work that nurses do in critical care settings. Um, My next um, project or my next desire is to really look at how we integrate team members into our team. And how do we use each other's strengths and weaknesses um, to be a more cohesive team? And so that I understand where you're coming from, you understand where I'm coming from. And I'm hopeful that if we can actually build a system where we better mentor our team as a cohesive group, um, that nurses will be happier, healthier. Um, And I I truly honestly believe that a healthy team results in better patient care. And so I think if we can do some more work on really understanding how we support the team and that relational aspects there, that we will, in the end result, will be better retention, better recruitment, which all adds up to the end goal of better patient and family care. Um, so that's my my next goal is to really try to, and dig a little deeper into that, that team dynamic and the mentorship and how can we do it better. Thanks for listening. You can reach me or information about this episode on our website, www.radicalnursetalk.com. The producer and editor of this podcast is Jeremy Ramos Foley. Social media by Amy Stragan. If you'd like to support the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. Join me next week for more Radical Nurse Talk. And in the meantime, have a radical conversation in your practice. It can change lives.